Tootsies. Jess, we're live. Oh, yeah, folks. Welcome. We're here with uh, we're here with the 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 novelist, the the basketball player, the handsomest the, man in Spokane. The, wow, the devilishly handsome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got Alan, um, and Steve. We're we're here with Jess Walter. <laughs> Jess, we're so stoked to to chat with you a little bit. We we got a lot to cover, um, but uh, but how you been? I've been well, thank yeah. you. Good, yeah. good, man. You hanging out pretty pretty all right during the pandy? I feel like this is just pandy. right up your alley. Yeah, the, I I. It's it's no working at home by yourself. I'm tw- I'm on year twenty five of it. So um, uh, I used to go out every day for second breakfast. Um, so that's been the hard thing is uh, finding finding places that'll serve me breakfast outdoors. But yeah, that I, I usually write six in the morning, five in the morning till ten, and then I go uh, play basketball, have second breakfast, and then go work a little more in the afternoon. So yeah, it feels, the pandemic feels like writer time to me. Yeah. Me and Julian, we actually, we're, we're in the means of starting a a restaurant called second breakfast. Are you? Yeah. Elevensies? I'll be there. Elevensies. Yeah. I am in. Yeah. Cool. Epic, man. Um, when you voice your own audio book or excuse me, your book, do you take on character voices? Are you one of those? uh, I definitely do. It's hard though. I mean, uh, and so you have a script and it takes like a week and you're sitting there staring and you're thinking, what did I make this person sound like? And I really don't do that many voices. I do Sean Connery. Oh, come oh, on. Yeah. Come no on. thanks, I'm waiting for someone. And that's I it. am the lost dragon. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and you can't, if you're writing about these, meeting these stoner kids in a 7-Eleven, you can't really lapse into, would you like a, some weed, Mr. Yeah. Johnson? <laughs> no, you did a great job though, man. I'm not, I'm not like, lying. You, yeah, you, I, the, for an author, they were like they if the next novel hadn't had all this italian in it and richard burton mm-hmm, they totally. probably would have had me read it but it was um uh and i then i did um i've done a couple of other like short stories and novellas and things that people publish so yeah is, is it interest is it does it interest you to uh, kind of get into those roles and, and act them out like you said you you kind of wish that you um you had the right to be the the voice on a lot of these things, but they yeah. don't let you because you're not an actor. But do you enjoy that? Do you? I I, I, <clears throat> I always wonder what it's like for a musician to hear a cover, um, you know, hear someone covering your music. Oh uh, yeah, you know, and so it's it's kind of like that. It's like when someone else would read my books, I'd be like, ah, it's not supposed to sound like that. And and it, whether it's better or worse, it's right. just and it's just different. Yeah, and I always say it's like watching video of someone make out with your wife making out with oh, your wife yeah. no matter how good their technique mm. you're going to be that's Weird. not how it's done you know so it can Weird. be hard to hear someone else read your work because you didn't hear it that way right um it's not that it's right or wrong it's just that's not how you always heard it when you were creating it so i, I find i do find um being not really non-musical i find so many parallels to the way musicians work dan spalling i'll talk about this all the time just those you know being loose or being tight you know being open you know it really and and that's one with you know i always think when i hear a great cover i'll think i wonder if that hurts the author Mm. or hurts the musician to hear their work interpreted not better but in a way that they didn't hear it Of those three things, I would rate them as worst being watching somebody else make out with your wife, (laughs) hearing somebody else read your entire book, and then the last one being somebody 
yeah. cover your song because it takes three minutes. You get, you yeah, get that's you're, true. you're there for three yeah. minutes and then you're just like, well, yeah. whatever, I'm on to the next thing. Yeah. A whole book, I mean, how long does it take you to write? I know some books of yours have taken, what, is it 15 years? years? Yeah, yeah. Beautiful Runes. And it, it's, it's funny when you say it took 15 years because that really means you didn't get it for 14 years. You couldn't yeah. solve it, you know. Uh, so I finished a draft in about 2008 or 2009 and then went... Um, read it and said, I don't quite have it. And then mm. I, I, I loved it enough by then that I wanted to nail it. So then I would just write something else. So, um, but yeah, the, uh, I, 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 you have to sort of turn, let it loose out into the world too. And so part of that is listening. So I did listen to Eduardo Ballerini read uh, Beautiful Ruins and he did an amazing job. But usually when I would hear someone, they, you know, they would, um, Often with actors, especially when they would do audiobooks, I would feel like they would over-emote. Honey, I'm home. Where have you been? And it's like, <laughs> my people don't talk like yeah. that. They would just say, hey, I'm home, you know. And, and so that's the hard thing is I would hear, you know, people who I thought maybe had been fired from a soap opera, you know, um, reading the work. Right. But Eduardo, who I loved his work, He's uh, he was on The Sopranos. He was quirky on The Sopranos. Oh, wow. Cool. Um, and he's on... Uh, great actor and so and then you know just what he was able to do with the italian the way it sounds so musical and then mm. and then i was really sold when i heard his richard burton because um, richard burton's a character in beautiful ruins and to be able to get that just the welshness in his british accent so you know. when uh, when you when when you're creating an audiobook and your publisher says we're going to put this out on yeah. audiobook First and foremost, do you uh, audition the voice actors, and do you audition them in every single language that the audiobook comes out in? Mm. I mean, audiobooks are mostly an American uh, oh. and British um, thing, so it's almost uh, and and as with almost everything in other countries, they speak English. <laughs> you know, mm. they take two or three languages. So my Italian fans have listened to Beautiful Ruins in, in English. Mm. Um, but you, they'll typically, so, you know, when a book comes out, they sell the audio rights and most authors will say, I'd love to have a chance. And they almost always say no. And then they give you five or six different actors and you can listen to some of their audio work. Um, you, you don't, you aren't really the one auditioning them. It's really the publisher, but they do have oh, a wow. give you a say in it. So my new novel, Cold Millions, they're doing a cast production. So there are like nine different actors reading cool. different parts. It'll be more like a play. So I'm really excited to hear that, um, which I was really glad for. They're Native American characters, so they hired Gary Farmer, terrific. Um, uh, I think he's. I think he's Blackfeet tribe in Montana actor to portray that. And so that feels a little more like casting. And so I'll I'll be really curious to hear how that one comes out. We we were reading up, you had a a front spread in the Inlander. Check out the handsome man, Mr. Jesse Waltz, baby. Check me out, dude. I like that. um, How many different places did the photographer go? You know, that one was pretty quick. I had a photo shoot this morning where it's like, you know, oh, work with me, work with me, and yeah. leaning forward. Yeah. But that, that was just kind of meet me at the river and, uh, and snap a photo. And, uh, that handsome, was- handsome man right there. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, we were, yeah. we were kind of digging into this, and uh, I, I didn't know anything about your new novel. Yeah. I knew that you were writing it, but I didn't know the premise. I'm real excited about Thanks. that. Yeah, it, it, was, it was really cool, um, like just 
burrowing into that period. It's cool to be out here in a 1902 mm. former roadhouse um, speakeasy dance hall yeah. like this place was. I mean, the period I'm writing about, you would have taken the streetcar out from Spokane, gotten off here, taken a boat across, and there would be people dancing Gatsby style on the water. <sighs> you know, I mean, it. one of the things that made me want to write about that period was looking at these postcards of packed downtown Spokane of um, it was the theater capital of the West next to San Francisco. This was what? Yeah. This Spokane was doubling in size every six or seven years. Um, it, all of that wealth, if you think about, if you think about the internet, the railroad in 1909 was the internet times five. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And this was, you're coming West. You want to get things to East coast to West coast to Seattle, Portland to LA. Um, you're pretty much going South or you're coming North and all of these rail lines come, came together in Spokane. That's why we still have trains everywhere. And then they spread out. One went to Portland, one went to Vancouver, one, seven main rail lines. And so this was, amazing wealth um also because that amazing poverty and that's what i that's what the novel is really about is this other moment in history that feels like to me it does now with civil unrest with um class and race race issues mm. you know causing people to finally stand up for their rights uh, and with all of the wealth landed at the very top of the pyramid with the wealthiest Americans. Um, this is, we're at the moment in history now that it has the highest income inequality since 1909, the period I decided to write about. Wow, man. When did you start deciding to write this, this book? You know, I'll get these ideas and I'll stow little bits. It's like, being a writer is a like being a magpie. You're just flying around looking for little bits of garbage and you take them and throw them in a drawer. <laughs> and it's true? like, what are you going to do with that baby yeah. Ruth wrapper? You know, and yeah. you're going to build a nest eventually. So I started thinking about this novel back when I was a newspaper reporter and I came across the free speech riots of 1909. Um, 500 people thrown in jail just for standing on the street, singing and talking and, um, and protesting the fact that you had to pay a dollar to get a job with these job agents. And I just always thought, wait, my town was the center of progressive action in some period. Um, and so that was the first impulse. And then, uh, and then I would collect all these different ideas and details about it and throw them aside. And um, so right around probably 2014, 13 or 14, I dove back into this idea. And, um, and I had another novel, a kind of more contemporary, funny, more like the financial lives of the poets. So I, I yeah. sort of go back and forth with those ideas until something just grips me. And, um, and the other thing I kind of wanted to do since I was writing about that period, I've never written anything that's sort of like a Western. Mm. And because this was about the way violence begets civilization, the way Spokane was nothing, didn't exist, and then 40 years later is 100,000 people, it, I thought, I want to write this almost that it, so it feels like a Western, like um, those forces, you know, uh, that, you know, I always thought of it as like Deadwood, but with a hundred thousand people. Yeah, you know, I want to, I want to tell Deadwood, but with a hundred thousand yeah, people. Sweet. Uh, and then the, and then the real life character who came to Spokane, who, who led the free, free speech movement in 1909 was this 19 year old pregnant activist from um, New York named Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, um, who is, you know, who is, 
so incredibly courageous. Ten years before women have the right to vote, she's on the street corner with these hobos and transients fighting against corrupt um, police and officials, you know, to get basic rights. Five hundred of them arrested, and it was really her actions that kind of. Um, you know, in a totally peaceful, nonviolent protest, one of the first in American history, um, she defeats, you know, these forces. And so I thought, what if you write a Western and instead of your, um, the stranger who rides into town being Clint Eastwood, what if it's a pregnant 19-year-old? So she's the protagonist of the whole story. <laughs> yeah. Well, she's actually not. I, I realized I wanted her to be, you know, to be sort of the mysterious figure who rides in. So it's really oh, cool. these two brothers, um, two Irish brothers from Montana, Gig and Rye Dolan, um, Dolan, who are, uh, my grandpa was a hobo who hopped the rails in the 30s, and, and so I, I wanted two characters who kind of had that romantic side of um, of being a, an itinerant worker, so yeah, so that that's the sort of basic setup of the novel, and then getting all those pieces to come together, um, you know, so that, and the language I think is what is what really drives you in, you know, like, um, again, it reminds me of, uh, the way I see musicians work when I can hear the sound of 1909, then I'm ready to kind of dive in and write the novel. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. So have you, um, you're a storyteller, Jess, I would describe you as a storyteller. Yeah. I'm in part, I, th I think I tell stories yeah. a lot. Oh, definitely. Have you always looked at the world and like constructed these tales through how you see it? Do they come to you or do you just sit down and go at one point, like, what am I going to do with my life? I guess I'll write. Like, how do you, how do you get I mean, to I, this place as a, yeah. a, a, as, as Jess Walter? Like, how do you get to be a writer? Yeah. I mean, I, I, don't, I honestly never thought of it as a career when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Um, I, because Clearly, I was going to play in the NBA. Um, I was going to be a professional basketball player. And so I didn't really know why you'd bother with anything else. But it was a daydream exactly like that. Mm. And, and I think, you know, just like you don't become a musician without loving music, without feeling it somewhere inside you. I, um, we were talking about what happened to my eye when I was five. I got a stick in my eye. And so you can't go out and play with the other kids for a while. You're yeah. stuck inside. And I think that's when I fell in love with books. I remember my mom and my aunts and my mom's friends pulling me on their laps and reading me these books. And the world starts to exist for you that way. You start to see it in stories and you start to, um, you know, just encounter it that way. And by the time I was in junior high, I was the editor of my school newspaper. I had a family magazine that I edited called Reader's Indigestion. It was like Reader's <laughs> Digest. Nice. <laughs> and uh, Circulation 3. Oh, yeah. And um, my brother and sister and I, my grandma would give us scratch paper. I try to explain to my kids, we didn't even have paper. We had to use the back of other paper. And we called it scratch paper. Okay. Did, and, you, uh, did, did you find it that early on, like in that period that, people were appreciating your yeah. writing and they were like, wow, you got a real knack for I mean, this I th thing. I think that's the other huge part of it is you get feedback. Right. People tell you you're good at this, mm. you know, and being good at something um, is a pretty quick way to love it. You yeah. Know? Uh, and I loved basketball even though I wasn't as good at it, but, um, but this I knew I was good at. And uh, so, yeah, I wanted to be a novelist. I, in my middle school library, I can remember clearly like, bending down and looking to see where my books would go on the shelves when I was older. Um, and it was almost later that I realized how 
hard that is, you mm. know? Like whatever you dream of, you don't dream of being okay at it or you know you sort of you, you know nobody dreams of being a mid-list author who works at a small university and um you know and uh has to drive a cab on the weekends they dream of being Hemingway right you know? yeah. and so I think separating the love for something from the part of the dream that is ambition um is sort of this step that you have to go through where you're just, oh, I'm doing this because mm. I love it, you know, because I love to do it. And then once you do that, um, then I think you're freed up to kind of be more successful at it, when, if that makes sense. When did you learn to do that? I'm still learning. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm in the middle of book tour now, so it's really hard to keep the ambition at bay. Yeah. Um, mm. I got to think, again, the parallels, the, there's a certain control in writing a novel, you control every part of it. Um, and then you have to sh give it out to the world and cede all control, yeah. including the control of how well it's received or God. if it's successful or, you know, any of that stuff. And you've been controlling every little knob and whistle and, you know, you've, all the characters have done exactly what you thought. You've, um, you've built in subtextual things and you've created literary allusions to war and peace and to everything else. And now you have to, turn it over to people who might read the first eight pages and, you know, or to someone who might listen to the audiobook and say, too many readers, you know. Mm. And, um, so that, that part of it, uh, letting go and, you know, putting it out there. I think the, whatever sort of career path you have, um, you can look back and say, that taught me this lesson. Mm. But I think you just have to learn the lesson. Like, mm -hmm. it, the path doesn't, you could have success in the beginning and then a middle period. You could have, you know, I, I spent seven years sending out short stories trying to get them taken by journals and seven straight years of rejections before I sold my first one. So I felt wow. like that long path up taught me some <laughs> of that that to connect my confidence with my humility, mm. you know, which yeah. is you, you, you think they're opposites, but I really think they sort of, mm. they sort of connect someplace. Um, and then when, and then when you do that, when you realize, you know, that you've written something that, you know, bombs or that no one cares about or that no one notices, um, then you go back to why you did it, which is that you love it, you know? And um, I think living in Spokane has been great for that too, just the grounding of this place. And yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I learned that mostly in my 20s. You know, I, um, the kind of writer that I wanted to be you know, I, uh, because I was a dad so young at 19, I went to work at the newspaper and so kind of took this other route and um, thought, well, that, those dreams of being a novelist and being on the New York Times book, you know, bestseller list and winning awards, I guess I'll just have to put those aside, but I never quit writing, mm. you know? Um, and it was interesting to put the, the ambitious dream part aside and then realize that I still wrote every day. Was it, uh, sorry to interrupt you, Jules. No. I have so many questions for you, Jess. This no. is awesome. Um, do you believe that um, the tangible execution, because you, you were a father really young, yeah. and then you got a job as a writer. Right. 
And that so, is a newspaper writer, which new- is very different kind. Yeah. Okay, different kind. It's yeah. probably a lot of output, right? Am, am I? I mean, I, I again, I always another musical metaphor. I liken it to like you get a job in a, re, in a like you always want to be a musician. You get a job in a bar with a piano that's never been tuned, right. and people come up with requests. And yep. they, you know, and so yeah, you're playing all the time. You get your chops. You're like dueling uh, pianos. Yeah, right. You're just like you know, but you're not writing your own music. You know, you're right. Just, yeah, and that's kind of what newspapers felt like. But it was a great way to get my chops, but I was still going to have to learn the other kind of writing. So did you, during that period, um, was the, you know, the joy of writing versus just like the tangible execution to pay your bills? Yeah. You were kind of maybe flexing that, that worker mentality, worker bee sort of thing. Do you feel like that informed, you know, you, you came about um, success you know, probably through a lot of like working it out, yeah. dueling piano style writing, and then yeah. you started to become a novelist. I, I I always think of it as I took the service entrance into literature. You know, um, <laughs> I was uh, like I didn't come in the front banquet doors. I was working as a waiter. And, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I was. Um, I, yeah, I, I was writing newspaper stories, and Ruby Ridge, the my first book, was really the path that that you know, led to me finding my way back to this daydream. Mm. Um, I, I always had kept my eye open for certain kinds of stories that, mm. I, that blew me away when I was young. And one was the big socio-political, economic, true crime story, you know, mm. In Cold Blood or um, Executioner's Song, one of these big meaty news stories that I could write a book about. And so at the, well, when I was at the newspaper... I was in my, uh, let's say I would have been in my mid-20s covering this shootout in North Idaho between um, uh, federal agents and a white supremacist family. And I'm like, this, this, this white separatist family, this is, this is such a big, rich story. And mm. so I started taking sabbaticals from the newspaper. And I was still writing short stories and sending them out. I had written a novel and a half, and it was in my garage gathering dust. So I kept I was always working at fiction writing even when I was making a living as a journalist but I knew there was a book in this case um, and at that point your ambition becomes um, this attribute that you need you know it's almost about like when to turn those dials up and down mm. and so the ambition it took to you know with no agent no I'd never been east of of Wyoming um, and here I've got to try to sell a book into New York publishing. Hmm. Yeah. And how does that work? Do you, do you, I mean, I would imagine at this stage in your um, writing career, you sign a book deal or yeah. you sign to a book deal. But back then you just, you had to write the entirety of the book, right? And then try to get it published. You know, because I had all these journalism stories. So the, my coverage, myself and several other reporters for the Spokesman Review, we were Pulitzer Prize finalists. So that kind of puts you on the map. So ah. there's 1992, there's three finals for the Pulitzer Prize and Spot News reporting, the LA Times for the Rodney King riots, um, Miami Herald for Hurricane Andrew, I believe, and the Spokesman Review for... Ah. So, so already you're kind of on the map. So a literary agent is going to take your, your letter. So I wrote a book proposal and sent it out and um and that and your first step is to find a literary agent and they're going to be in some uh office in new york and they're going to have writers everywhere almost all of them in a nine block radius in brooklyn but um uh, (laughs) but they sometimes take 
to those of us out here in the in the sticks. And so, uh, so I sent out and I found an agent, and he then takes my proposal to publishers, and he sent would and I remember getting letters from it be like we're out to these nine major publishers and um, I can't I'm so excited to be working with you and this is going to be the greatest and then three months later um, well those nine said no but we're out to these 11 more publishers these are really good second tier publishers one of them is going to take the book and then the next one was well we're now out to university presses and, ind and independent publishers I'm sure you're so talented someone's going to take it and then the last one was this is my last day at the David Black agency um, you're book proposal was one of the things I really wanted to sell. And then he said one of the nicest things an agent's ever said, I may have failed you, but your talent won't stick Whoa. with us. So oh. I started just sending the book proposal out myself to publishers. And so found a publisher, HarperCollins, uh, and they agreed to take the book. And um, so for my first few books, it's really a, an unlikely story, but I was unagented. I would negotiate my own deals. No way. And I had, I had this brilliant negotiating strategy. If they offered 40,000, I would say 80, and then we would settle at 60. Yeah, <laughs> That's boy. how you do it. I've, yeah. been, I've been bargaining cold brew coffees and, and Fanta. Yeah, no, no, you double. And oh, then two they, cold brew. You hear yeah, that, Steve? Wow. <laughs> We're, nice. You need to call my agent. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at that point, do you have the book written, or are you proposing the book? I had about, I had about twenty percent of it written. I had a lot of my reporting done, gotcha. and then the publisher loved the idea. And then right after I signed was the Oklahoma City bombing. Oh my god! Um, Which and, I'm, and, this is so deep. And dude. so Oklahoma City bombing happens, <laughs> and one of the reasons, one of the motivations was Ruby Ridge. So now my publisher says we want that book in four months, and I've only written a small percentage of it. So. I say, of course. Yeah. And I get my advance and I get like, you know, $25,000. And I immediately go, I'd covered the trial, but I thought I need the whole trial transcript if I'm going to write a whole book. I'd interviewed already, you know, more than 100 people. I'd done three years of reporting on the case. So I was ready to write the book. I just hadn't, you know, and, but, so I went to get the trial transcript and they're like, okay, it's $2 a page and it's 22,000 pages. And I've got, I've got a $25,000 advance and it's going to cost me $24,000. Yeah. So I would lug my laptop to the courthouse and I would sit there and all day read the trial transcript and write chapters and make phone calls. And then I would go home and write at night because um, I've got four months and I'm coming from newspapers where you don't ever miss a deadline. Oh my God. And I would, to keep myself awake when I was writing, there was a place, one of the first espresso places in Spokane called Java Junkies. And they had this thing called the Buzz Bomb, which was like eight shots of espresso and a little bit of goat's milk or something. And, oh, it um, sounds like a colonic. Yeah, it was. And I would, I would go get a, uh, a Buzz Bomb and then my kids had a trampoline, my older daughter had a trampoline, and I would do backflips on the trampoline at midnight, you just know, to stay awake to keep writing. And, and I just wrote in this like frenzy of, um, I know this story, I've reported it for three years, it's just get it down on the page. And wow. I had a fax machine and I'd fax the pages in the morning to my editor. Were you, know. were you enjoying that process or were you just fully addicted and like in that space and didn't know what else yeah. to do? Like where, where was your head during that period? Um, a little terrified. I bet. You know, I had, I, if I stopped to think about it, I would have such severe imposter syndrome. Like, mm. I, I don't know how to write a book. <laughs> you right. Know? You've been pounding uh, the pavement this whole time. Right. I, it out yeah. And, uh, and I, I've wanted to write a book, but I don't necessarily know how. And then, um, but yeah, the, the adrenaline drives you and, 
once there's a thing that happens when I'm writing anything that I, I'm outside it, outside it, and then I'm inside it, mm-hmm. and then I'm dreaming it, and I'm hearing the things, and I can almost see what has to come, and I know, and I can step above an entire novel or a whole book and see the shape of it. I need, it needs to start here and then get to the trial. And it uh, doesn't always happen, but when you, when you get into that sort of really deep uh, creative state, like, again, like I think any artist, any musician, any sculptor, you know, the time just passes and the material just comes together. Wow. And, and I, you know, I nailed that deadline. I, wow. I wrote an entire book in, in four months and, you know, 20, uh, 25 years later, it's still in print. It's, but, you know, it was made into a CBS miniseries. It's been the source for two documentaries. It's, um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, I think that I, now that I'm older, I use less of that artistic adrenaline, but I still feel it when it kicks in. I still mm-hmm. recognize it immediately. Like, mm. I'm in this thing. Does wow. it make you sad that you that you lost some of that artistic adrenaline? Do you wish you could have that? Or does that kind of just, like, stress you out? Thinking uh, about it's times? probably like any athlete. It's replaced uh-huh. by savvy, you sure, know? Sure. It's like, oh, yeah, I may not be able to stay up until four in the morning, but, mm-hmm. you know, my heart probably also doesn't look like, right. you know, like a... Right. a spastic frog either i was was gonna ask if if there was ever a transition in going from just being this ambitious writer kind of just pounding the pavement like you were figuring it all out to actually now it being a job and now this is your career and you have these deadlines does it did it change your attitude about the writing process yeah i think the hardest part for me was right after ruby ridge before i published any novel so the ruby ridge book comes out in 95 um ruby ridge is in 92 the book comes out in 95 um and i've got a little bit of money but i quit my job i went in and um, I still had kids. In fact, I'd had two more kids after Jeez. that. So I've got to support myself. I've got, you know, my older daughter, um, you know, in, in 1995 would have been um, uh, 10. And then my my wife and I are starting to have, my second wife and I are starting to have more kids. And you're still so, in your 20s at this uh, point. I'm, I'm like 11. No, <laughs> yeah. um, um, no, I've turned, yeah, I've turned, I've just turned 30 God, when that man, book comes out. And I'm, and so I've still got to support kids. So I, I took some ghostwriting jobs to pay the bills. Um, the first one was Chris Darden, the prosecutor in the O.J. Simpson yeah, case, which was that. great. That was actually, I don't even think of that as ghostwriting. That was kind of a great, wild thing to write. But then I did a couple of others. I did like Michael Johnson, the Olympic sprinter. Oh, um, the gold chain. Yeah, yeah. Spending time uh, with him too. Yeah, yeah. And um mm. And those, you know, and those are just to pay the bills. You're just coming in. You're a fast writer. You can help someone write their story. But I had this realization that I see, I, I writing has a kind of mystery and ability to explain the world to me that I can I can only connect with faith. I grew up in a totally non-religious family. Mm-hmm. Football was what we did on Sundays, but. Um, but it explains the world. It gives me hope. It's it's very much like a kind of religion. Yeah. It's it's more than what I do. It's more than a job. It's the yeah. way I see the world. It's what I think. The it's it it gives me hope to find solutions yeah. in mm. writing. Mm. And and so I realized I can't just do this for money, or I will learn. I will lose that. Mm. I will lose that sense of it. So. Um, I had to go back to the original dream of being a fiction writer and start turning down these really lucrative ghostwriting jobs, bank enough 
that it looked like my kids might get a year of college and then turn back to the thing that I loved, which was writing fiction. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so my first novel came out uh, in 2001, about six years, uh, 2000, so five years after the Ruby Ridge book. And then, um, and then it's just been, you know, some setbacks, some successes. And then um, it was really my third novel, Citizen Vince, which won the Edgar Allan Poe Award, which kind of landed me on a more national stage. Mm -hmm. And then after that, the Zero was a National Book Award finalist, which is, you know, the Academy Awards. And you're, you know, they're saying this is one of the five best literary novels of the year. And so that really landed me at a place where now I have the freedom to have it be the thing I love and support my kids mm -hmm. and us, you know. So, um, yeah, that, you know, in those, in that 10 years between my first book, 11 years between my first book and the National Book Award, um, you know, that there, it, it would, I would be lying if I pretended like I was just, you know, uh, zen about it all the time like For you're sure. you're up in the middle of the night no one i'm you know i don't have enough of a reputation i'm not being reviewed in the right place mm -hmm. i'm not selling enough you know you worry about all those things yeah um but but i would kvetch and whine and complain and then the next day i would go right yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah and that's and i think i think even now that's the thing is writing cures almost whatever worries me are yeah, you an everyday writer Oh man, I'm an every everyday writer. Wow. I took Christmas off last year, but wow, um, man. good on you. But that can also mean writing in my journal, laying on my back on a couch. You know, um, can mean reading someone else's book and then go writing for a while. I, I like, I just like to do it. You know. Well, it sounds like it's, <clears throat> excuse me, super cathartic for you, and, yeah. as it should be. And I think you know, I heard you talking about how. Uh, your the process for writing cures uh, you know it's you can celebrate through your yeah, writing you totally. can uh, go, get through your grief through your yeah. writing you you know you have all of these phases of yourself through what you write about and I wonder sometimes if like if you actually write yourself out of situations that you're in and put yourself because you can invent whatever you want in your in your own writing it's all coming from who yeah, you are I, I think you do but you almost always have to sneak up on yourself. If I write too directly into something I'm feeling, um, then I get in my own way. But if I put it in, in someone else's life, and I'm, I'm not someone who writes uh, what they call autofiction very often, like really autobiographically, I get really compelled by other stories, by mm. looking out at the world. Mm. But then, like any time you look out at the world, it it's healing for you. you uh, yeah, It's so much better than just like trying to get at, you know, why do, you know, what, what is this thing that I can't get to the bottom of me? Hmm. Like we just look deeper and deeper inside. And sometimes if we look outside, there's the answer. But that, and the daily writing part for me, I do, I always think, you know, let's say, um, I was, I, you guys are so, when you guys harmonize on this show, by the way, I love it. And I'm like, if they call on me to harmonize, I'm going to fake choking. Cause uh, when I ever, I try to Let's sing. Let's harmonize. Okay. What are what, we doing? What, 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 no, no, no. <laughs> whenever, my son is incredibly musical. And whenever I try to sing, when I would try to sing when he was little, he would say, can you not hear that? <laughs> <laughs> my mom, my oh. mom would always pull this, uh, when oh. we were driving in the cars. He'd go, hey, Alan, who sings this song? I was all, oh, 
Mom, this is Michael W. Smith. And she said, well, let's keep it that way. Oh, dang. <laughs> Savage, <dude>. Mom. Wow. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, it was so, either my mom or maybe my sister. I would maybe throw my mom under the bus there. So for someone with almost no musical ability, although I was fourth chair in seventh and eighth grade trumpet. Come on, man. Uh, uh, were, were there only four chairs? I think there might have been five. Fifth, five chair. <laughs> Fifth kid was waiting on his trumpet. Yeah. Fifth kid had <laughs> asthma. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, uh, um, but... Uh, but for someone who has so little musical ability, I I think about writing so musically, mm -hmm. and to get myself to work every day, I don't think of it as work. I think I call it what musicians do play. Mm. Like nobody says, I don't want to pick up that guitar. They just grab it. You yeah. Know? And and if I do that, and then I and I I don't force myself to write very many things. That's the other reason it can take fifteen years to write a novel because you can just sort of sit down and play and start riffing and looking for the melodies and the and the stories that come out. And and in that way, um, you know, I don't think of it as going to work every day. I yeah. just think yeah. this is what I love to do. How do you decide with being an every everyday writer what is going to stick? How do, yeah. you, how do you like get? A novel out of like okay uh, this is going to be the, the thing. gods decide that the um where I, is that where how i mean like, i what is I, that feeling I still think i hit like what about a shortstop would have hit in the in the 70s i hit about 245 and about the other you know 755 75.5 percent just doesn't ever become anything you know it yeah. just it peters itself out the i can't quite get my arms around the show i've been writing a short story for the last month about covid and i thought um uh, i have this neighbor back there who looks a little like i think of him as skeezy leo dicaprio because he looks a little like leonardo dicaprio but like after four four years of math you know i was like Wait, i was like this just sounds like leonardo dicaprio yeah, to me. It could be. <laughs> but i'll see I'll, i saw skeezy leo back there and i'm like and sort of like financial lives of the poets i thought what if this guy is like being so careful with his family and doing everything the right way, wearing a mask, washing his hands, and then one day he just goes off with Skeezy Leo. You know? mm. So I've been trying to get that story, and I'm in the part of the story where you write tedium, where his life is the same, he's doing it the same way every day. To write tedium that's not tedious is really hard, you know? So I'll get so stuck on that part of the story, and wow. then and I'll just think, you know, what happens? Then I'm like, oh, I know, you know, and... and so the breakthrough that will happen will be humming that song, humming that song, and then I know what the next bar is. And that's like, you know what? When he goes off with Leo, uh, he thinks Leo must go off and go to a party every day. And he's actually going to see his kid in the park. His wife drops off, and he has to stay six feet from his kid because his wife won't let him get. And so his to see Leo is actually living the same life he is, but with less money. You know, uh, it's like, oh, God, I know this story now. And so you, you, you sort of noodle around you know and and the sound of a story like i said is is you know so i called it true story <laughs> and the and he meets leo that he's pulling into his driveway cuz leo's off his alley and he's in a nicer house and you know leo lives in the alley and so he's pulling and he's like hey hey i talked to you true story man i was uh my car got stolen and my old lady you know and he's like yeah yeah here's 5 bucks so that's the first time he meets him so and i and uh, so you're going around humming true story, trying to figure the end of it. And then you realize, oh, the true story is we're all in this boat. You know, this guy who's 
standing back there, you know, smoking his vape pen and drinking his energy drinks and drinking a 40 and getting high with his buddies. He can't, his wife, his ex won't let him go within six feet of his own kid, mm. you know, and the, the kind of heartbreak of this guy seeing that. And so the process of writing that story of that character getting out of his own head and me getting out of my own head, they kind of end up mirroring each other. You wow. Know? And, and that's kind of what it like a, week or a month and I, and that's i don't even know if that story's going to go anywhere you know i my i'll send it to magazines and they might take it they might uh, i just sold a story recently to uh, moss magazine in seattle for 25 dollars. so i might Sweet. spend a month on it and get <laughs> 25 bucks hold up hold um, up hold we've been trying to get a bio for our website for a minute <laughs> and if yeah. you're going right it's 25 bucks on it, I, listen we got six more of these perriers in the fridge <laughs> well, okay uh, my my the novel that I uh, I mean Beautiful Runes was has sold more than uh, you know, almost two million copies. So wow, really? The, uh, so the other Holy end of that, I'm but, obviously. But the funny thing is, I don't really spend any more psychic energy on that than I do on wow. on yeah, the twenty five yeah, totally. dollar story. They're all music. They're That's all so interesting. They're all language. I, so. Um, so if you hire the guy who writes for Moss, I'll do it for twenty five. If you try to hire the guy who wrote Beautiful Ruins, it's gonna be it's gonna I, be tens of millions of dollars. I mean, I just want, want the, <laughs> the the text that you sent me to when I asked if you'd be on the show was plenty. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah, I can just screen it. if you give me permission well, to screenshot that. And uh, and you're welcome to use um the uh uh Andy Warhol's factory in the woods, which is, is what good. I think you guys got going. Well, yeah, dude, that's, quote, that's right. That and we're gonna Warhol's do. factory in the woods. It's crazy here. <laughs> just it's crazy. Just you feel like dude. when you text people that there's like this. People re- kind of rely on you to like send them incredible prose coming. Uh, I hope to them. not. Uh, I, although I will <laughs> not get use, your number, and I'm I will not use text you. language. I just yeah. I can't. I can't bring myself to. No, but there there are a few things. I end up having to do every eulogy in the family. Um, For sure. You know, and I'll have, I remember my aunt, uh, you know, like when she started getting ill, giving me notes and Mm -hmm. saying, here's what I want you to say. So I've probably given 15 eulogies. You write, you know, you write the obituaries when, you know, your family, when people in the family pass away. Um, You end up, people assume you're going to give the toast, you know. um, But if, you know, whatever things came together to, to give you the kind of ability and love of something, you know, it seems like a pretty small price to, you know, does your, does your family all fully support everything that you do, read the stuff you do, like it, they think you're weird. What do they think about you? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think sometimes my kids have had trouble, um, you know, reconciling that dad is like you, you go to college and oh your dad's my favorite writer no one wants to hear that mm. you know and Whoa, my daughter yeah. my middle daughter started at in an english class and the and the teacher looked up and said are you jess walter's daughter and she just got up and went and transferred english oh, classes shit. immediately it's like i don't want that oh, pressure man, when i turn yeah. in a paper yeah you know? wow, and, um but for the most part you know like my son gloriously doesn't read my work he's like i'd rather just have you be dad you know i don't want to you don't you prefer it that way no i mean i'm fine with it either way um Uh brooklyn my my oldest daughter who uh you you know well al is she um she i'll never forget 
you know, growing up, my kids just loved reading, and and Brooklyn's always like, I want a story that is, you know, moving and and well written, literary, but also just like compels you along, and I want this, and so I'm always giving her books, and um, she went to. Uh, she traveled in the Far East and she was going to, she wanted a backpack full of, of paperbacks. And I considered this my most, like, um, uh, my most important job as a parent was to pick out the, the, little, the little paperbacks that she could read and toss aside, you know, as she was in Tibet, you know. And, um, and, I'll, and when she was traveling, she was in India and she got separated from there was there were floods and we didn't hear from her for a few days and she finally calls and i'm like oh my god are you okay and she said dad i'm fine and oh my god a hundred years of solitude and i'm like i know and we spend the next five minutes talking about a hundred years of solitude and then the phone goes dead and my wife's like how is she and i'm like i don't know but she yeah. loved a hundred years yeah. of solitude so so when when i sent her beautiful ruins after i finished it um still one of the greatest phone call she just called and said all those years when i was asking for a book this is the one i want wow. oh, and you're just like oh, oh, at that gratifying. moment you're just like you've raised the people who appreciate the thing you're doing you know and you've connected with them in that way not only did so. you sell two million copies but you also pleased your daughter i pleased my daughter which is oh, pretty rare yeah, yeah that's i'm gonna really start to cry that's i so know cool it was it yeah. was this really great moment i and my kids are all so supportive you know my um, Brooklyn's getting her PhD in English, so she's such a reader, and we—that's wow. what we talk about all the time. And then my middle daughter has a degree in linguistics and comparative literature, and my son is an engineering student and, and a musician, piano player, and singer. He's in the choir at UW. And, oh, cool! Um, and but even he, you know, we—even though he doesn't, he's sort of purposely avoided reading my books. He's read a couple of short stories and mm -hmm. loves talking about them. So, and then my wife is, um, you know. Has, you can't be an artist's spouse without um, taking on a lot of the anxiety and yeah. insecurity that they're just going to carry. Oh, yeah. And we can carry it in a lot of different ways, but they'll know it's there. Mm. You know, I can be like, no, I don't care if I got a bad review. And yeah. she's the one person who knows that my, that you know, that I'm just going, yeah. yeah. Or, you know, yeah. no, it, not, it, it'd be great if the book does well, but, you know, the only person who knows I'm lying when I'm being, uh, <laughs> you know, when I'm being, yes, is, and so for them to, you know, they, I think they shoulder some of that, you know, and yeah. that's a real gift. So my wife, Anne, has been terrific about that. Well, you said that your whole experience of being a writer is, is all kind of rooted in solitude. You spend a lot yeah. of time just by yourself. So I assume that I a lot invented of your... this whole world we're living in, yeah. working at home yeah, by yourself, never <laughs> seeing it. anybody. Yeah. yeah. Is that, is that play a factor into your, um, family life with you or do you have a pretty good balance with all that stuff just i assume you have a lot of deadlines and have to continue yeah. to write more and more and more again there's all it's so funny because to look back at a 30-year writing career you know there are just all these different periods um brooklyn used to say uh, people would say do you want to be a writer and she'd say oh no that's sitting around in your pajamas crying <laughs> <laughs> Is that because she saw you doing it? Yeah, I think, so I always feel like Brooklyn grew up with a slightly sadder dad. Oh, and, wow. Uh, you yeah. know, um, because, you know, the, the, <clears throat> that, that ambition, that, you know, that drive, that... Um, but, but I'm also like a really playful, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think... And, I, and if there's anything that I'm as comfortable in my love and ability for as writing, it's parenthood. Like, I mm -hmm. think I was born for that. I love 
being around family and around kids and um and being a novelist the last few years meant I was home all the time you mm. know and um and so so I, I do think I was able to keep it in perspective and you know I would have to travel for book tours so I would you know be in nothing like being a musician but still I'd have to go you know to 25 cities or something over a you know over two months um toured in europe a few times and um but those those events are smaller so i'd have to be gone sometimes like that but mm -hmm. for the most part you're home and um and as long as you can disengage from the world there Anne used to describe when I'd be really deep in something, I would like come in the house wearing one shoe, set the coffee cup on the table, pour the coffee in the sink, and then just walk back Whoa. out to my office. You know, I'd just <laughs> yeah. be so into my own world. Mm. So you have to be able to come out of that at the end of the yeah. day. You, you kind of lost most of your youth to having a kid when you were 19. Yeah. And if you were a writer by trade, and I imagine your life was just in a, a skewed in some weird way that it was just like, or I mean, it's all you knew because yeah. that was what was yeah. going on. But I imagine it was pretty altered in, in a different way than yeah. most people would be used to. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't really see your life from the outside. So right. mm -hmm. it seems as normal as anything. But mm -hmm. I do feel many times like a throwback, like, um, you know, I'm, I've been a dad since I was 19. I'm I'm in the, ha the town I was born in. I sometimes feel like I'm from the 1930s, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but uh, you know, but kind of comfortably so, you know. Mm. The, we can only live the life we're given, and you know, when maybe it's one of the great things about having one eye from the time you're five mm -hmm. is you don't sit around imagining what that other eye would see. You just look out of the one you have. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So. Um, I'd like to circle back if, if it's okay with you, Jess, to the Ruby Ridge. Yeah. Um, yeah. Book and experience. I got, I think I came, I heard about your writing, uh, through a bunch of different angles through Brooklyn, yeah. through Dan Spaulding, but then also I'm a avid, stay up later than my wife and like just cram story documentaries. Yeah. And I happened upon Ruby Ridge yeah. and was, um, first of all, fascinated when Jess Walter popped up in the documentary. I think it was the American experience documentary oh, yeah. that's yeah. out. Um, you're writing for the spokesman review at this point. You're young, you're in your mid twenties. This, uh, event occurs over a, a, a span of about two years, right? Well, the, I mean, the, yeah, the, the case itself, we didn't really know about it. I mean, but by the time it bubbles up at the newspaper, the standoff is happening. The gotcha, happening. yeah, okay. You know, it's not like we're out there saying, you know, which, um, which alcohol, tobacco, and firearm informants are infiltrating which of course, cells of, course. of white separatists. You know? Right, and so you, you, this bubbles to the surface, the standoff happens, yeah. and you go out and cover. Are you there on the ground, on foot? Like, how does it, as an investigative journalist, what are the, do you, are you cold calling people? And yeah. as well, once you get the, the story, if you, yeah. you've downloaded all this information over time, and you go, I want to write, write a book about this. Well, I've always been curious about these stories because do you have to get the rights signed away by the families? You know, if well, you go write a book about Oprah, you have to like yeah. get the rights to the book. Yeah. Well, this was, um, I, I, it works differently every time, of course. This, this was not the sort of book that, you know, 
this was not Randy Weaver's story. This was not the FBI's story. This was down the middle, tell every side of the story. This was a journalistic story. So I approached it as a journalist. Yeah. Getting on the story itself was really hard because I was not the top of the food chain at the newspaper. I was a scrappy 20-something night cops reporter um, with his daughter at home living in a $165 a month apartment in Brown's Edition. I checked out a company car once and didn't return it for four months because I didn't have any other wheels. I was so poor, you know, and... um, and so I'm trying to get on this story. This huge story breaks. Um, we have one of the best, we have these amazing reporters who are on it. I'm stuck in the office mm. and it's happening in North Idaho. And it was about day three when I thought, I, re- I heard, found out the Weaver family was from Iowa. So I just started burning up the phone. Um, get every, call every library in Iowa, get every phone book, get every Weaver, call every Weaver until you find a relative. And then I did that and I found a cousin who told me, oh, the, the um, Vicki Weaver, the wife, her family's driving out there. Oh, do you have their number? So then I call them. So I do an interview with some people in Iowa, in Spokane, as, as they're leaving for Idaho. I go to my editors. I say, here's all this information on the family. Um, write it up. It goes in a story. And then they're like, all right, go up to Idaho. They gave you the lead. So-, so I head up to Idaho. I meet the family. That sort of gives me an in. In the meantime, I'm also working federal sources. The great thing about being a reporter is it's the, the you can be a good writer. You can be a good researcher. But it's just curiosity. It's just what will you do to find out more information about something. But not there are a lot of people that are like, no. Don't don't talk to us. We don't yeah, how are you received when you are making those yeah, cold sometimes, calls? Sometimes, and I, I always think I'm I'm the conduit for the story. I trying to get your story out there. You know, I mm. tell I say, look, you know, the the FBI is saying Randy Weaver is a is a white supremacist, and she's like. He was in the army. He's they're they're good Iowa folk. He worked at a John Deere factory. They have yeah. kids up there, um, you know that yeah they're a little religious and weird, but you know ba ba ba. And so you get that side of the story, and then you go to the FBI, and you you know mm-hmm. and, and you just sort of bounce back and forth and get everybody's version of the story. And if you do your job right, um, you're you're just sort of telling, you're just yeah. sort of getting the facts out there, getting the word. It takes a very diplomatic Yeah, approach. yeah, but it also just takes curiosity. It really yeah. was curious, how do you go from being this all-American Iowa family to shaving your head and putting on a swastika on a mountaintop in Idaho, you know? I mean, what are the steps that right. that happens? How, and from the other vantage, how does the FBI and the Marshal Service and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Far- Firearms, you know, end up in this place where these mistakes mean that they're, they're shooting civilians, you know? It's just tracing those steps and finding out the human decisions that lead to them. And that's, that's what I'm so fascinated by and the story that I, that I want to tell. Um, because I had gotten to know uh, Vicki Weaver's family, when the standoff ended, and I had been report, so I'm up there reporting as all the things are happening, but um, I said, when, when it's over, I'd sure love to talk to the girls. And so every, every reporter, Time and Newsweek and the New York Times and um, ABC, NBC, uh, uh, dozens of reporters are up at Ruby Ridge and 
and the next morning I'm the only one who interviews oh the Weaver God. girls oh as they're leaving. And as they're leaving, the day they left the, the day they leave the, the cabin to go back to Iowa with their relatives, I interview them and I describe for the first time what it was like inside that cabin. And that was the side of the story that hadn't come out. Um, and from then on, I felt like this is my story. Um, I'm just going to keep chasing it. So from the trial, I flew to Iowa and researched the Weavers' backgrounds, how they arrived there. I, f I followed up with all the different federal agents. I just, you know, it's really just curiosity. You just want to get the next piece of the story until you can put it all together. What were those girls like? Interviewed them in that moment. Yeah, I mean that was still one of the most harrowing interviews. Oh they were furious. You know, they had their their you know, from their vantage, they don't think our parents have put us in this situation. From their vantage, their brother was shot in the back, their mother was shot in the head as she <laughs> held their you know, it's it's horrific. They they huddled in a cabin with their dead mother for nine days, assuming they were gonna be shot by the federal agents. It was um and and the FBI has been saying this, these are you know white supremacists who you know they've been saying the sort of company line. And by that time, even the federal agents knew that they had made terrible mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was tracing how did those mistakes come about. Um, and it isn't usually, you know, it, there are always two steps to those stories. The first is the mistake, and the second is the cover up. Mm. And it's tracing those places that the cover up occurred. Um, and so that was the story I wanted to tell. How did these two? tragic things happen how does an all-american family end up with these abhorrent beliefs that lead them to be paranoid and conspiracy theory driven and then how does the government end up you know treating a, f a family like uh, criminals and you know and killing them and um and those two stories you know you just you you just cue to as much of of the truth as you can get to in a story like that mm -hmm. was there an overwhelming uh, ingredient that you believe both of those parties were susceptible to that kind of led yeah. them to that place? Is it is it That's a great question. For, fortune telling? Yeah. Is it throwing out enough like belief? I mean, the, the book was originally called Every Knee Shall Bow right. because of a sign the weavers had at their house, Every Knee Shall Bow to Yahshua Messiah. But it was really both sides were saying it, it was a kind of stubbornness, a kind of tribal stubbornness mm. that uh, in the 25 years since that book has only gotten worse. We are so stubborn and tribal now, and we don't want information. We don't want no. anything that's going to change the way we think. We no. want, we want, all we want is to be confirmed in what we already believe. And that's, you know, the, the weavers, um, you know, went down this road of conspiracy thinking that a lot of Americans are going down now that leads them, you know, to believe that that racism is the answer. The government w went down this other road that, that, um, you know, that in which they refused to see beyond their definition of, of, you know, who, who follows these beliefs and the stubbornness on both sides, the inability to just stop and treat this like human beings. Mm. Um, and it's, and it probably leads to a lot of tragedies like that. Yeah. Do you see that, um, overwhelming, uh, cause, what was so interesting about diving into Ruby Ridge, reading your book, was how many things during that 10-year span of the, the, the Ruby Ridge tragedy, what in your book you notified led to, or, or at least was connected yeah, to... Oklahoma City. And Oklahoma <clears throat> City, as well as Waco. Yeah, what, yeah, Waco and Ruby Ridge were really the triggers for Timothy McVeigh and, and for... And for the last time until now that 
the radical right wing has been as fired up and instigated it was during that period. And uh, but but prior to this, and correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. there was a there was a situation that happened with a alt right neo Nazi group robbing banks up the yeah, West the Coast. Order. Yeah. And this was what at least spawned this yeah. like overwhelming sense in trying to rid our country of that. Yeah, there's there has always been this um you know this outlying group of uh, of racist criminals like the order, but yeah, in the 1980s, the order, um, inspired by by groups like the Aryan Nations in Hayden Lake, um, set out to commit robberies and start a, wo- a war between the races. They are always trying to start a war between right. the races, and, right? You know, and thankfully, they're uh, you know the that. The, the the stupidity of that uh, of that project always fails out from under them. But yeah, um, yeah, and so that the Weavers moved to Idaho at a time when investigating those groups was at such a premium that they fell into the investigation. Um, but but even but then it was on the fringe. After Waco and Ruby Ridge, you had you had um, you had uh, you had congressmen and women in Idaho and other places saying the government's out of control and mm. you know they're murdering you know civilians and 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 it 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 really pushed a lot of those groups into the mainstream the mm. the Michigan militia the one of those a, a group much like the one that's now accused of of uh of planning to to kidnap the Michigan governor, um, you know, really came up during that period. But what happened was after Oklahoma City, when um, Americans saw that that the a lot of these groups wanted war, and then I, they lost a lot of the appeal, the mainstream appeal. They went back into the mm. fringe. Mm. Um, now, when you have a president who says openly racist things right. and encourages the Boogaloo Boys or the Proud Boys. Um, you know, that now they're back out in the mainstream again. And no matter what you think, no matter who you vote for, whether you're a R or a D or a blue or a red, um, you know, to have groups that, that propose racism and violence, you know, that, that should be out of the political mainstream. Neither party should allow that sort of thought to be, um, that and conspiracy thinking. So, you know, I, I, I feel like you know, if we can't draw the line at violence and conspiracy thinking, then right. then we don't have a whole lot in common. You know, if, right. if political parties can say, yeah, let's let's toss out violence, including rioting. You know, um, I, I'm so I'm so supportive of the cause of Black Lives Matters, but I I don't think any politician should say, you know, well, yeah, it's good to blow stuff up or set right. fires or anything. Right. You know, I I think that's a pretty safe place to say. Uh, I believe very much in the cause of racial justice and that, um, you know, that law enforcement needs to treat, needs to act differently. But I also don't think we should loot stores. Right. I I don't think that it's too far to go. Unless it's a banana republic because they got some polos, Jess, that you and I could fit right into. But you have to do that seasonally. You do not want to, you do not want to loot a banana republic in the summer. Their winter line is is lame. (laughs) Um, I, right. So you inter- interviewed a lot of federal agents for uh-huh. Every Knee Shall Bow. And um, as a journalist, you, you had spoke about, like, I, I was hungry and I had to yeah. go find that story. It, it is, I've never interviewed a federal agent, and so yeah. I don't know, and I'm assuming this. But 
do they have to go out and find jobs kind of like that as well? In my study of Waco and yeah. of uh, Ruby Ridge, like there's these federal agents just like, I mean, I have to do the same thing. I have to go yeah. out and I have to be like, okay, I'm going to sell you this song. It's going to be the yeah. best song you've ever heard and it's going to make me millions. And federal agents must have that same capacity to go, I'm going to find the case. I'm going to solve the story. Do, yeah, they, do I, they go out and create that tension? No, I mean, I, uh, I mean, they're just regular guys. It's so funny, cops and FBI agents, when you interview them on the job, they're like, um, at, at 0400, the perpetrator um, arrived at the premises. And then when you see them in the bar, they're like, the mop shows up at four. Uh, he's yeah. had four beers. I'm like, what the fuck? You know, and, um, <laughs> like you just don't want to interview turn them into on dead the Zan job. Danza. Yeah, yeah. They're, <laughs> right, they, uh, they're just guys. A lot of them are ex-military. Um, they, sometimes they have a sense of of doing those things, but they're really just doing the job, you know? Right. And, and interviewing those guys, you know, I'll never forget Dave Hunt, who was a marshal in Idaho, whose job it was to get Randy Weaver out. Mm. And he's from Idaho. He's not some Washington, D.C. guy. He's like, I know these guys. I know what they're afraid of. Half the time, I agree with them. I don't want to pay taxes either, but I do. Yeah. Um, so I drive up there, and I say, Randy, look, this is going to get out of hand. Just come down. You and your kids, just come down. And he's like, Bathsheba hath commanded me that I shall not. You know, and he's like, ah, oh, come on. You know, and, and just the fatigue with which he saw. I mean, he's watching that that fuse mm. and he's like i can't stop this you know mm. um and I, I i always found him one of the most poignant people because um there was nothing he could do you know he couldn't he he'd say look you can drive down yourself of course you'd say that um mm. you know i'll send the sheriff up uh you know he's not he, he's not a sheriff elected according to posse comitatus law or whatever you know mm. it's like when you're dealing with you know, and I had, I remember some of that as a reporter. I remember going up and um, interviewing a white separatist family and the son had a rifle pointed like this the whole time and the dad and I, and I had driven up in that company car that I checked out and never returned and, and I had a short haircut because the time my dad was cutting my hair and he only did. Um, military and flat top; those are your two choices, or so, the or the combination, right? <laughs> or the combination. <laughs> and so he's like, "Well, I know you're a federal agent. I saw your car." And I said, "No, it's a company car from the newspaper." Oh yeah, that you think you think you couldn't get fake newspaper? I said, "I'll show you the registration." Well, to be honest, dude, this oh. is a rental. I just have yeah, right, right, yeah. It's <laughs> like well, Malibu. Well, what about your haircut? And I'm yeah. like, "Well, my dad cuts my hair." Oh yeah, wow. for it's a Chevy Blaze, I, bro. I just could not. It was it was a Ford Tempo. Ooh, I could. Not Good convince year. him because um, everything I said was only proof that I was clearly a federal mm. agent, you know. Mm. And that that kind of conspiracy thing and that not being open, you know, if we don't have the sort of openness, um, then we're we're doomed. You know? Yeah. Wow. Um, oh, I had a I had another question pop up and it's completely uh, left my gaze. Um, so so uh, you. Yeah, uh, shit. Take over, that's okay. Um, <laughs> Jump in. You, you know, you said that the whole thing was curiosity-based for you and that you were just, like, <clears throat> fascinated by all this stuff and you had, were able to take this diplomatic approach to figuring yeah. out of it. And you, at the same time, there, there must have been experiences like what you just talked about that were, in fact, really scary for you to be a part of and also was... was after the fact of writing the book, were you... Were you wasn't there, like, this... 
intense amount of responsibility that you felt to telling mm. the truth? And then yeah. like, did you get like death, death threats? Or like, I just, um, I just assume that like something like that kind of thing happens with this kind of story. I did get, I got some threats. I showed up on one FBI list. Um, when you get to know, I got to know like some, there were these, uh, skinheads up there that I would interview, and and it was really tense up there. I remember th- there were times I was there was a black reporter named Adrian from Bo- the Boston Globe who was up there, and he and I were walking back from this rural bar, the Deep Creek Inn, and um, we're walking back, and there's this these skinheads on the road, and I'm walking next to you know one of the few black people in Boundary County, Idaho, at that moment, you know, and and he's like, "Don't leave me," and I said, "I'm not going to leave you." And um, and those guys walked by, and we're like, "Hey," and they're like, "Hey," you know, and then we just sort of go around, and we're like, <laughs> both of us were just like, "Oh, you know, that was sort of scary." And mm. um, then the night that that um, they announced Vicki Weaver had been killed, and there and many of the protesters were screaming, "This means war," and you could see. And when you, if you looked in the woods, you could see FBI agents with their rifles trained on this roadblock, you know, and you're like, this is going to erupt. And so there were times like that. Oh, my God. Usually, like, a reporter, I really do take my job pretty seriously when I was a reporter of just taking the information, you know, and, and being um, Switzerland, being as neutral as you can. The the I did, you know, there were a couple times when I was a little nervous, but I was telling you about these skinheads. There's these skinheads from Las Vegas, and I used to, I finally came up with a question about skinheads that they would always be, how did you know? I would say, when did your dad leave? (laughs) Because almost all of them were looking for some paternal, Mm. you know, some, uh, and, and, you know, there was one group, there was this one group that was, they were, I always thought of them as the friendliest skinheads. And I would say, and they were, and they're like, yeah, we're in a band. Uh, we play speed metal. We used to play this. Um, you know, we used to be more folky, you know, kind of like um, Peter, Paul, and Mary, but racist. <laughs> and fucking intense. <laughs> yeah. and, um, and I just found them so naive, you know, so bloody stupid and they uh, called me once a black van just drove by our house if we get killed you need to take our story out oh i guess it's just a van you know and um i just found them so naive and simple and lacking information and be, and again because they're closed they're not ever going to get that information they're going to get the little bit that they allow in yeah and so I wasn't too scared of those guys finding my house, you know? Sure. They also weren't very bright. But you're still taking, sorry, Alan, uh, you're still yeah. taking this, like, neutral stance about yeah. about extreme people. Yeah, who are, totally. You know, who can be like, you didn't say that this thing was yeah. the way that I think it is. So, like, that would, well, that's what yeah. would scare me. Um, yeah. You know, just that, like, yes, of course, you're telling a story from just, like, this level playing field. Yeah. Of, like, I'm not taking any sides here. Well, but, and, like, and, and I'm not a reporter now. I haven't mm-hmm. been for years. But we live in a country where the the president of the United States calls us the enemy of the people. And, right. you know, it is it is a dicey time. And newspapers are, you know, they're dying because of the lack of advertising. So there are fewer reporters, stretched thinner, um, loathed by, um, you know, by uh, 40% of the country, not trusted by so many people. And I find it heartbreaking. They, they are... It's a pretty thankless job. Mm. It doesn't pay well. Mm. Um, you do it out of that love of writing and of storytelling we talked about. But there's another love the reporter has to have, which is a, that that the writing you do will lead to a kind of betterment and justice. You mm. know? Yeah. Um, 
you write about Ruby Ridge so that Ruby Ridge doesn't happen again, so that people can see those steps that mm. led to this thing. And of course it happens again. You know, you, the, one of the hard things about being a reporter is feeling like you're just sort of chronicling these things that yeah. nothing you do right. wow. changes anything. But, but the, I would say your physical safety was, um, you know, my 85th concern most days. Mm -hmm. I, I wrote about, um, guys in the witness protection program and got to know some mafia members in Spokane. And, um, uh, because, um, there was a murder committed in Spokane that I covered and it turned out it was a, um, New Jersey mafia guy connected to the Lucchese crime family, the Sopranos family, no um, way. essentially who had been sent here. Um, and so that got me into this whole thing about how many witness protection guys are there and then tracking them down and interviewing them. And there were, there was one time when one of them like followed me, um, in his car that I was like, uh, you gotta be careful with your curiosity sometimes, mm, mister. Yeah, <laughs> you, yeah. know, you, you talked, uh, just a second ago about neutrality in journal mm -hmm. journalism and as, um, I mean, I, in, early into my 30s, I'm just now starting to care yeah. about the world that I'm raising a child within. Yeah. And the neutrality in journalism, now granted, like biasm's gonna happen yeah. in human sure. storytelling regardless, because we inform ourselves through yeah. the past and our future is kind of told in that regard. But I, I, neutrality seems to be slowly leaving journalism, it seems yeah. to me. And it's, and it's, um, I think probably because of a lot of different integers, you have to sell papers, clickbait, yeah. um, you advertisement needs. I mean, the, the, the real thing is not necessarily the market. The market doesn't drive it because people want sensational stuff. It drives it because people want to be reaffirmed what they already think. Ah, right? interesting. Fox News is so big because the people on it don't want to, they don't want CNN to pop their bubble. They don't want MSNBC to pop their bubble. They want to live in that bubble. MSNBC, the same thing. You know, I don't want to, you know, they, you, you want to be reaffirmed in what you already know. Mm. Um, and, it's funny writing a novel set in 1909, as I did with my new one, um, because the newspapers were the same way. There were there were four daily newspapers in Spokane, and you could get the labor progressive newspaper. You could get the um, the establishment newspapers that would just tell you what the business interests wanted you to know. Mm. Um, it was almost, um, it you know, the journalism really uh, evolved into a much more civic-minded thing. And because that's the period that I was a journalist, that's what I cling to. Mm. There are still amazing journalists and reporters out there. There is not um, there is not a great deal of bias within, except in the what we choose. Um, if you choose something down the middle, like um, the New York Times or the Washington Post or even the Wall Street Journal, which has a very um, right wing um, editorial page, but 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 covers the news really straightforward. Um, I think you're going to basically, I think TV news is harder because it's always had to be a little flashier. Yeah. I think CNN um, has gotten so tired of Trump's lies that now they just say, the president's lying. And, and if you're a Trump supporter, that, that doesn't seem very balanced or mm -hmm. neutral, it seems, you know. Mm. But, um, but I think these are unusual times to try to be that kind of reporter when, when um, you know, when disinformation is just everywhere yeah. you know but we have to, we we have to be discerning and we have to 
open ourselves to all different kinds of things and be willing to admit we're wrong. Yeah. And nobody, nobody likes to do that, unfortunately. Um, you, uh, you are, um, an older, younger father, excuse me. And you're seeing this evolution happen, um, with the age of the internet. Um, talked about misinformation. I'm curious going back in time, and learning about Cold Millions, your mm-hmm. new book, what parallels did you see? You oh. talked about the you oh. know sensationalized newspapers, yeah. just four of them in the Spokane area was only a hundred thousand people. Yeah. What other parallels were existing in that universe that you studied about? Because it's I, it's kind of fact, it, or it's kind of fiction. It's kind of nonfiction, yeah, right? Yeah, it, it's. Um, I mean, it really is a novel, but I I based it on these events that really happened, these free speech riots in 1909, and. As I said, the thing that drew me first was the parallel of income inequality. You know, mm. we have um, the billionaires got $2.1 trillion richer during the pandemic. Yeah. Now, the rest of the economy is suffering. We all know restaurant owners and, you know, we, how did they get $2.1 billion richer? Because everything is right now geared toward the finance side. Um, the simple aspect of housing. Now, we all, if you own a home, you want the value to go up. And middle-class people, their entire wealth is often tied up in that home. Mm. It's become not just a shelter, a place you live, but the place that you, the the instrument for your financial well-being. Mm. And so when that happens, what's going to happen to homelessness? When we make every home a commodity that... That, that generates wealth, when we take that commodity and we chop it up and we allow finance people to sell it as another kind of financial instrument, which caused the, the financial crisis of 2008, what's going to happen to homelessness? Why are we surprised um, to go downtown and mm. see people sleeping on sleeping bags? It's We've built this into these systems that we've created. And, and you look at 1909, and this is, when, this is when the system is being built. This is when... Um, so the two brothers in my story are named Rye, Ryan, and Gig, Gregory. His nickname's Gig. And I loved that. I loved thinking about the gig economy and imagining mm. a guy hopping a train in 1909, showing up in Spokane. If you arrived in Spokane on that train in 1909, you'd be one of thousands of, of hobos, tramps looking for work. All of the mining and timber in Montana and Idaho, all of the agriculture in central and southern Washington, the hobos came here. Mm. Seven rail lines coming in, Tramp Central Station. Um, And those hobos want a job. So up and down Stephen Street, there were 20 to 40 job agencies. And you went there and it cost a dollar and they would send you to a job. Now you go out to that job and these unions at the time are fighting for for rights for workers. They're fighting for a six hour workday, not five because it was a seven hour workday. They're fighting for a 10 hour workday, uh, or a six day work week. A, 10-hour workday, not eight, but it, instead of working 12 or 14, they're fighting for the right that if you if you cut your foot off in a baler, um, they don't just throw you out. Um, they have to help you. You know, they're fighting for basic, you know, um, health and welfare. Mm. Um, and we're in a system that is so geared toward finance that billionaires could make $2 trillion during a pandemic that, um, that they could chop up our mortgage and make money on that, but we aren't going to take care of the people at the most basic level with their basic needs. So to write about 
um, hobos on a train going to these job sharks to get a job is a, is in my way, uh, it's an allegory for, um, you know, an Uber driver. Um, no one's going to, he's going to drive seven days a week if he needs the money. He's putting his own car up. Um, if he wrecks his car, that's not Uber that pays for it. He pays for it. He pays his own insurance. You know, the, we, we are very much in danger of, of, putting ourselves in that gilded economy that we had in 1909 that was that you know led to the to the great depression to one fourth of people being out of work you know we're the um capitalism works beautifully if it's regulated if it's not it it will always do this the wealth will and since the 1980s we've cut regulations so much so rather than write a treatise an economic treatise on any of that i would i like to I write a novel, and then next, hopefully the next time you see a homeless person, you think of my characters, Ryan Gig, and you think of you know someone battling just to make a go of it. Um, what it's like to be so close to the edge that uh, you could lose everything. You know, your car breaks down, you call someone, you get a ride. Um, if you're if you know the guy who lives in the alley behind me, if his car breaks down, and he can't get to work, he loses his job, everything falls apart. Mm. You know, to be that close to the edge, um, and so. Yeah, I, I, I do think we're living in times in which we have to really remember to bring up the poorest and the, the least fortunate or we'll, we'll find ourselves there. That's such a wonderful mm -hmm. sentiment yeah. and uh, I think an excellent way to, to mean, wrap up. I was up. there'd be ping pong. There's going to be ping pong. <laughs> we're we're going to do some pong conversations. We just put up the table today. Um, Jess, you are fascinating and I feel uh, like we don't this is we this, we seven. haven't have a, I, we we're gonna I'll keep bugging back. you. We oh. know you're super busy. I'm gonna but have my son teach me to sing, and then I'm gonna we can do some I'm gonna harmonies. carry like. Don't a, you want to just do one song before I, you leave? I'm gonna carry some bass line that's gonna have you guys like <laughs> thinking this is amazing. I can't wait. We but, we'll but, maybe rehearse. I'm, I'm a few steps away. So. Okay, and we're gonna throw we're gonna put a basketball court down oh, here. Yeah. By the by, the water to get just right. to bring you and your son out. I won't play. I well. want to see that jump shot. I hate to do that to your thirty-something-year-old confidence to lose to oh. to lose to a small, one-eyed old guy. I don't have that much confidence, but um, <laughs> I I would throw my I would throw my my ring in the. I've got I've got yeah. range. I could hit for. I could probably hit my court in in Peaceful Valley from here. That's really? the kind of range I've got. See, I I um my dad always had a running joke. He would bank. He would th chuck it from half court, bank it in. it in. It was classic. Yeah. And uh, he would always go, ah, shit, I missed it so far I made it. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's but, a great – that feels like that should be a philosophy of something. Yep, it is. <laughs> I do that quite often with everything in my life. But this thank you so right. much for yeah, your time. Yeah, so fun. Where, where can, yeah. can people just buy the new book on the 27th? Uh, yeah, it's coming out. Yeah, they'll have some signed copies at Antes. I have a website, jesswalter.com. Cool. made a really cool five-minute – um, Ken Burns style film about Spokane wow. in 1909 with man, some of the dude. locations from the novel. So no you way. should watch that. It's Where really can they cool. find that? Uh, it's also, it'll, it'll be on my website. I won't put it up until the novel comes out because I'm using it at some of the events, but um, they can find that there. And um, yeah, yeah, I'll be out. Yeah, I have these Zoom events, which are like real events, but stupider. Um, and uh, so I have, <laughs> I have all kinds of... Uh, Shout out to Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> I have all sorts of uh, readings and events uh, in the next few weeks. And then, yeah, hopefully they'll like it. 
I can't I wait to digest all your stuff, man. Yeah, I'm super pumped to read it now, yeah. just knowing you it's going to be... I feel like I should go on hiatus, maybe like a three-month hiatus, just to read all of my oeuvre, yeah, and, then, yeah. uh, and then start up again. Yeah, <laughs> so. let's do another one. Seriously, yeah, I'm in. For sure. Definitely. All right. Let's Jess Walter, everybody. Thank you, thanks. Jess. Walters, yeah, guys. thanks for having me. Thanks for being here, man. Legend. Sweet. All right. Oh, boo-boo, did you just make it to the end of the video? Yes, you did. Do you want to see more videos just like this one, huh? Do you? Well, then head over to patreon.com slash live at the lodge where you can support the how goods of this podcast as well as the entire live at the lodge family. Yep. Yeah, you're going to get exclusive merch, personalized shout-out videos. Me and Jules, we're going to show up at your house and baptize your nephew, huh? Check it out, patreon.com slash live at the lodge. lodge.